Welcome to Forefront Radio, Forefront's podcast series featuring philanthropic, nonprofit, and sector leaders who are making a difference in Illinois and beyond. Forefront is unique for being the nation's only regional association that represents both philanthropy and nonprofits, as well as their advisors, other allies of the sector. Our mission is to build a vibrant social impact sector that improves the quality of life for all the people of Illinois. Learn more about Forefront and how to join at myforefront.org slash join. Good afternoon. My name is Dahlia Coleman. I'm the Vice President of Strategy and Policy at Forefront. And today on Forefront Radio, I am happy to have a conversation with Sampriti Ganjuli and Whitney Wade from Arabella Advisors. Sampriti is the Chief Executive Officer there at Arabella Advisors, and Whitney is the Manager of Talent acquisition. Arabella Advisors is a wonderful organization, a fantastic shop, and it provides foundations and donors with strategic guidance for more effective philanthropy. Five years ago, Arabella began a journey to increase the diversity in their workforce, a journey they recently wrote about in the SSIR this summer and one they'll share with us today. Thank you, Sampriti and Whitney, for joining me today. Thanks for Thank having you for having us. Good morning. I'll just jump right in, and I think I will uh, direct this first question to you, Sampriti. Can you tell us a little bit about why diversity and inclusion in your workforce became an important thing to take on? How did this conversation start, and why did this conversation start? Yeah, so the conversation began actually before I joined Arabella Advisors, but when I joined the organization, what I was told is as we, um, as a professional services firm, Talent is our only asset. People are, the, are what makes our business come to life. And as we analyzed our staff satisfaction survey and as we looked at our exit data for people who are leaving the organization, diversity and inclusion came up as one of the areas where, frankly, we had progress to make. And we measure very closely uh, two things. One, do we believe this is a, a diverse environment? And secondly, does my voice have a role in the organization? And while I would say they were good, we wanted them to be better. And the reason that we wanted them to be better is because in our work helping support foundations and funders achieve the greatest good, we need to bring the most diverse set of perspectives to offer the most creative solutions to some of the long-standing social problems that our nation and certainly our world faces. So we decided that this was important not just to retain talent, but also to be in service to the field and the sector. That is uh, a really key nuance. I think so often organizations, both on the corporate side and in the social impact sector, they look at diversity initiatives as a way to achieve some kind of checklist or to finish things on a checklist. And that could be a broad assumption that I'm making. And if that is a broad assumption, I apologize for that. But I think the nuance that you just brought out that uh, it's not just about diversity of people and perspectives, but it is truly about being able to achieve the broader mission that you're meant to achieve. You know, it's about meeting your overall strategic goals, um, and that increased diversity and inclusion can help an organization do that. So I appreciate that. How was it when you realized that this conversation needed to happen within Arabella, and how did you begin to have it? Sam Preeti, if you could answer that, that would be great. 
Yeah, so what we did was we conducted a series of focus groups uh, with our um, employees to try to understand what uh, to try to understand and unpack why it was that diversity was a challenge and we identified uh, several different areas. The first was around recruiting. Um, were we recruiting at the right places and were we recruiting for differentiated talent? The second thing we talked about was how do we make sure that when we recruit sort of diverse candidates that we uh, change some of our communications processes and protocols so that we are more focused on sort of including voices, uh, not just sort of reporting out kind of top-down information. And then the third is we had pretty intentional conversations around our field and how in the sector of philanthropy are there shortcomings, particularly in grant-making practices, around, if you will, embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we were very transparent in saying we should report all of our data. So we said, look, here's a place where we're not making great progress. What do we need to do differently as a leadership team, as a management team, as a firm, to make progress in this area? So Whitney, I'm going to turn to you right now. Since you're in talent acquisition, I'm expecting that after these conversations and looking at recruiting practices and hiring practices, that it was super easy to make this pivot, correct? <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's not always easy. Um, you know, there are a lot of challenges when it comes to what people think about, you know, diversity. And there's this misconception that um, diversity hires, quote unquote, and it's troublesome to refer to people as diversity hires that that means that something's being taken away from other people, you know. So right. there's just a basic lack of understanding around what diversity means a lot of times. And just because we are in the social sector, it doesn't exempt us from that type of bias, unconscious or, or intentional. Uh, so you have to have a lot of conversations that make it uncomfortable around, well, what does this mean? Why are you assuming that? diverse candidates are inherently less than you, and how do we unpack some of that and, and train our hiring managers and supervisors on, you know, how they're interacting with candidates, uh, potential or, or currently in the pool, and making sure that we are treating people fairly and uh, walking the talk, if you will. So a follow-up question to that. I read somewhere that in hiring practices, we tend to hire the people who are most like us. So it can be really mm -hmm. uh, difficult sometimes to push outside of our own circles uh, when we when we look for candidates. Absolutely. So how did how did Arabella confront that internal bias? Mm -hmm. Well, you have to make a concerted effort to reach out to people who are underrepresented in your organization without turning it into a quota system. That's where it becomes a challenge. You know, we get referrals all the time from people who are already highly networked, well-prepared, they're deep into the sector, they know about philanthropy, they know what Arabella means, what kind of work we do, and you have other people who may not have heard of a philanthropy advising firm but still may have transferable skills or an interest in working in philanthropy and would be great to add to the team. You have to go out and find those people. 
Um, they're not necessarily going to come to you if they don't already have an inside contact. So you have to go out and come up with a list of HBCUs to reach out to instead of the standard alma maters of people who are currently at your organization. That's just an example of one of the things that we did, reach out to different universities, go to their recruitment events, talk to their career services professionals, uh, and get in touch with their students and see what they're interested in and explain to them what we have going on over here and how they can be a part of it. That's awesome. My, my question was, uh, was also going to ask about how Arabella expanded its network and what new networks it began to tap into. And I'm wondering, Sampriti, if you could talk a little bit about that. You know, as the organization as a whole has moved to address this and really move in a more inclusive direction, what kind of changes at the networking and expansion of relationship building has Arabella um, made? Yeah, so um, thanks to Whitney, uh, as well as my colleague, Desi Osi we reached out to organizations that we had never um, created formal partnerships with, um, a lot of national associations of uh, MBAs, uh, black MBAs, Hispanic MBAs, as well as the emerging practitioners in philanthropy. So we looked both broadly at where are um, underrepresented populations likely to be looking for networking opportunities, and then we looked at sort of where in our field were those emerging leaders and we created formal partnerships. Uh, that is to say we made a commitment to these organizations to be present at those events, to talk about the Arabella story. And I was very clear that this was just not for a talent acquisition um, play, but this is somewhere where we wanted to be for the long term to show and signal our commitment to this particular area. And we made those, uh, if you will, commitments based on what we saw in our data. Where were we underrepresented? One thing I'll share where we are underrepresented is in veterans, um, and we've still not been able to really come up with a great strategy to help recruit veterans um, into Arabella. That is a place where I would like for us to continue to make progress, but that's how we did it. We identified where those networks were, where there were likely to be job seekers, people who were potentially thinking about their career options, and we wanted philanthropy to be one of the choices they would consider. And then we looked in our field to where there were uh, emerging practitioners that may also be aligned with company's values. Uh, a coalition called the D5 Coalition that's been working with philanthropy for a little bit around diversity, equity, and inclusion and really trying to embed some of these best practices in various philanthropies across the country have released multiple reports that always emphasize, you know, in order for these significant changes to be made within organizations, intentional investment in changing internal practices and processes and making them stick and making them sustainable over a longer period of time, that's what moves the needle on DE&I. It's really great to hear that you all are putting those best practices into practice. I'll direct this question to Whitney. Have you seen your practice bear fruit? What has change looked like? Absolutely. Um, we have made some significant strides over the past two years. I joined the, the firm almost, it'll be two years in February. And in that year of 2015, we hired maybe close to 60 people. I want to say half of those hires were people of color, uh, which was astronomical for the firm. Um, and I want to say we may have been on track to do around the same numbers for 
2016. So that active sourcing in underrepresented communities, committed relationships with some of the groups that Sam Pretty mentioned, National Black MBA, National Association of Black Accountants, Hispanics and Philanthropy, EPIP, you know, all the, all of the other people we've reached out to. We've hosted meetings in our offices. We've hosted open houses in our offices. We've gone out to more recruiting events and just have been open to starting conversations with people for the long term. It definitely has paid off. We have we have still a lot of work to do, but we've definitely made some significant strides in recruiting and, and retaining people from different groups and communities for sure. Awesome. Sam Pretty, this next question would be for you. Whenever there are large change management efforts underway in an organization, it's really important to get the leadership on board. So how did you get your leadership on board, or how did Arabella? Yeah, and, and let me just, uh, before I answer that, I want to acknowledge uh, your point about D5. The D5 report was actually one of the sort of blueprints for how we rolled this out. So we relied mm-hmm. very heavily on the practices by D5, and we're very grateful for the work they have done for the field uh, because it became a roadmap for us. In terms of leadership, um, I would maybe make two points. One, I think our entire leadership team was already committed to diversity. I just didn't feel like they knew how. So I think they knew the what, but they weren't sure um, about what all the best places were to reflect that change. And I think it was a little bit easy for us because we knew we were going to be hiring to make recruiting the sort of starting point for a lot of these activities. Um, What was more important, or I would say as important as getting leadership aligned, quite frankly, was really embedding the principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion among the frontline staff. And so what we did was we came up with, um, uh, through the advice of uh, others who had been here before, a group called the ILAs, the Inclusion Leaders at Arabella. And there were, I believe, 16 individuals in each of our offices across each of our lines of service who who went through a year-long training program to really become sensitized to the issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. For example, being trained in sort of having brave conversations, keeping their eyes and ears open to where they felt like we had practices that were non-inclusive. And we empowered these individuals, we really elevated their profile and empowered them to be the eyes and ears of the firm to embed diversity, equity, and inclusion um, in our organization. And so certainly I played a role in signaling our commitment in making sure we had the resources put towards this. None of this happens without intentionality and, quite frankly, Mm -hmm. financial commitment Mm -hmm. in addition to sort of moral support. Um, I made sure that the senior leadership was aligned around that. But I think the most important part of what we did was we empowered people at the front lines to really identify where we needed to change policies and practice, and we empowered our head of HR and our entire HR team to bring forward recommendations that were consistent with best practice where we weren't doing things right. And it worked, I believe, or it's working because these ideas are coming organically. They're not just top down. That's amazing. This has been over uh, what period of time? Two years? Yeah, I mean, the journey started five years ago, but really we began to put in place these policies over the last two, two and a half years. This is amazing. A consultant friend of mine, she also works in change management, and she often says that 
it takes an organization, you know, eight years to reach a point where a change has been fully adopted by the organization and is being supported and continually maintained. Hats off to you at uh, Arabella for doing this in a rather quick turnaround. We are on a journey. We are not at a destination. So I just want to be transparent. I see this as sort of continuous change management. Nonetheless, I do think that um, the belief that um, leaders drive this change may be a little bit of a false construct. So let me just Mm -hmm. unpack that. I believe leaders play an important symbolic role in, uh, in moving these initiatives forward. But if they don't come, if they're not adopted and they're not believed across the organization, then I think these types of uh, movements and these types of initiatives really get stalled. It's the sort of feelings at the front line and the mood at the middle that almost matters more, quite frankly, than tone at the top. And increasingly in organizations where you have a large millennial workforce where employees are very engaged, not just in their work, but also in the sort of business of what an organization is doing, it's almost more important to have that buy-in at the middle of the organization than anywhere else. That is so true. That is really, really true. You can't see me right now, but I'm nodding my head vigorously. In this Stanford Social Innovation Review article, you mentioned that incorporating DEI values at Arabella had some perhaps unintended consequences in the way that you worked with your clients. You helped a major client uh, uncover some implicit bias in their giving strategy. Can you tell us a little bit about how this change has been affecting the organization on the client side, Sampriti? Yeah, so I think our field, quite frankly, has been struggling with um, DEI for a while, and a lot of it has to do with the inherent power mismatch between funder and grantee, also a little bit of an inherent tension between those that inherit wealth and the populations that they are often trying to serve, and I think we just have to acknowledge that that's real. But when that translates into actual grant-making practices, so for example, funders that require sort of three years of audited financial data from a grantee to whom they make a grant, well, that may not be supporting a small, local, you know, uh, minority uh, uh, grantee organization that has identified sort of a micro-need in their community and has a real innovative solution. So we began to talk a little bit more intentionally about that, and one of our Two of our uh, fantastic team members, Nancy Chan and and Pam Fisher, created what they called a DEI grant-making checklist, which was a three-page document that's also actually now on SSIR, where they basically said, look, these are some of the implicit biases that may be part and parcel of your grant-making structure, and are you willing and able to change your grant-making processes, your grant-making policies, your grant-making docket? Are you willing to do that in order to embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion? And the reason this is eye-opening for our clients was I believe they, like us, thought about DEI within the context of their own walls. That is to say, how do we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion within our firm? Uh, and, And there's nothing wrong with that. That is a great effort. But the bigger impact, the sort of multiplier effect, I believe comes in the field if and when we think radically differently about our grant-making strategy and, as a result, address some of those deeper issues, the systemic issues in philanthropy that have given rise to the DEI challenges that we have. Being a little bit more prominent, having uh, maybe sharing our story, not just our successes, but also our failures, 
has opened up a new set of conversations with our clients in terms of saying, hey, we're struggling with this too. What guidance or what advice do you have? I feel that I am seeing much greater intentionality around diversity, equity, inclusion in large part for the great work that D5 and others have done. So that's what's kind of opening up the conversation with our clients. Forefront here has been observant of more and more of these conversations. Just in the past two and a half years, I've been privy to more conversations among foundations about either diversity, equity, and or inclusion. And these conversations are no longer happening just behind closed doors within quote-unquote safe spaces, but they're also happening in public in front of other stakeholders who have very definite ideas about what justice and equity and inclusion looks like. I think there's a real moment of growth and understanding happening within philanthropy right now. And so I totally agree with what you just said. I'd like to ask you each this question, uh, starting with you, Whitney. Thinking ahead of what uh, Arabella wants to achieve, particularly as it relates to developing a robust pipeline of talent, what would be one or two recommendations that you would make for others doing this work? So something that we want to achieve is figuring out a way to create a pipeline of more diverse candidates at the senior level. That has still been a huge, huge struggle at our firm, frankly, and across the sector. You know, the the numbers are dismal when it comes to percentages of senior leaders who are of color in nonprofits, foundations, trustees. It's the same. It may be a little bit better than the corporate sector, but in our sector, it's just as much of a challenge. So something that we are really continuing to focus on is how we can keep broadening our networks and get some of those senior positions filled by people from different communities. It's still a challenge that we have to tackle. Advice that I would give to other organizations about how to start having these conversations or tackling these things, I mean, I think that we really need to move on from, you know, avoiding discomfort, flowery language, you know, over-messaging, overthinking, not being transparent, not leading with a point. That's something that we really focus on here at Arabella is lead with a point. Be intentional about what you're trying to do. Be transparent about it. If we really want to engage in anti-racism work and racial equity, we have to give up this idea that it's going to be comfortable and smooth along the way. You know, racism is bad. Sexism is bad. It should make you uncomfortable. It should make you upset. Otherwise, I'm not sure we should be having this conversation if it doesn't, you know. There's a racial wage gap larger than it was 40 years ago. These are things that we need to talk about, and it will be uncomfortable. So we have to just get ready for it to be a little bit awkward and not use it as an excuse to not move forward with the work. So I would just say get everything out there and be prepared to have some difficult and challenging conversations and turn those into brave conversations where you're using empathy as a guide for how to learn from each other and come up with practical solutions to whatever your challenges are at your particular organization. Sam Pretty, the same question. You know, what's ahead for Arabella and a couple of of advice for others? Yeah, so what's ahead? I feel we've made good progress on diversity. I think we are making progress on inclusion. 
The thing that I think is really hard to tackle is equity. So that's going to be the journey we go on this year is to think about our equity practices. We know that minority um, populations start on a lower pay scale than, than white. Um, yet, a very common HR practice is to ask people what they made in their prior job before they come to an organization. We are debating whether we want to continue that practice because it perpetuates inequity in our field. These are hard conversations. These are hard data to confront. And as Whitney said, we know that in order to do this, um, we have to have those hard conversations. Nonetheless, sort of managing that and being careful about how it's positioned and how it's interpreted is also something that we are very sensitive to. So that's sort of the journey for us this year. We would also like to be a little bit more prominent in the field to talk about sort of incorporating DEI into grant making. We want to be more intentional and more sort of forward in the field uh, to sort of say, look humbly, this is what we've learned. Let's engage the community in trying to figure out how we collectively can move that practice forward. In terms of tips or advice, as Whitney said, I believe that if you are going to do this, you have to come from a fundamental position of being uncomfortable. As a leader, you have to be comfortable with people calling you out on mm -hmm. behaviors and practices, some of which you may be aware of and some of which you may not be aware of. And I think that you have to be okay not having answers to all of these kind of challenging conversations. If your value or your view is every message has to be tightly controlled, I have to be honest, I think this is a tough journey. If, however, you believe that ultimately, collectively, getting there together as an organization makes you stronger, makes you better, makes you more cohesive, then that kind of trade-off or that kind of risk is well worth the journey. This has been so amazing. My takeaways from this conversation, I've been taking notes throughout this whole thing. Lead with a point. I love that because I, too, get really impatient with the KV, KV uh, messaging around diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm like, what are we really, tr what are you trying to say here? What is, what is the real thing you're trying to address? Being uncomfortable with the discomfort, I think that that is a huge barrier for a lot of folks. And I think we just need to acknowledge that, yeah, there are going to be plenty of awkward moments, that kind of, you know, crickets moment in a meeting. And uh, we can all get through that. Being brave and being empathetic. If we can do that, if we can do that as a sector, as a field, be brave together, be empathetic together, we could have a lot more of these conversations so the awkwardness doesn't necessarily have to uh, keep us back. Not necessarily believing that leadership has all of the answers, but also opening up the definition of leadership for the middles and the frontline folks, because that too is leadership, and listening to the perspectives and the experiences of those folks in uh, other parts of the organization also really key. I personally have learned a lot from folks in my finance department or other admin areas that I they have perspectives that I never, ever would have tapped into otherwise. Mm -hmm. Also, I think your question or your intention around salary history, this is really interesting. Uh, I'm putting on my public policy hat right now because currently there are movements to address this through public policy. In Massachusetts, I believe a salary history ban was just passed. Yep. Um, New York, I believe there is an effort uh, underway, and here in Illinois, there is an effort underway, and we've been looking at this from a uh, 
a wage equity point of view, uh, considering you know the numbers of nonprofit or social impact sector employment. But absolutely, there is a racial equity lens as well as a gender equity lens that you can apply to that work. And so offline, if you all want to have a conversation about uh, ways to collaborate on that, you know, I'm happy to do that. So New York uh, is about to implement some legislation too. Yes. Yes, and there are people in 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 the Capitol who are thinking about some federal legislation uh, with regard to that. Massachusetts has made it illegal to ask for salary history on job applications because, as Sam Pretty said, people are carrying lower salaries from place to place. Um, so again, that's an area where an organization may not be intentionally holding people back, but you're perpetuating a significant gap, you know, in wages, and that affects where people send their kids to school, what type of insurance coverage they're able to have, you know, where they live, all sorts of things that have real implications for people. The fact that an organization or a company like yours is uh, thinking about those kinds of uh, barriers and challenges in a structural way is just really awesome. Um, I don't want to turn into too much of a fangirl, but that's that's just really amazing, and I hope that that's a model that other organizations can can follow. So I'm going to uh, begin to wrap up right now. So I wanted to just thank you both so much for joining me today on Inauguration Day. I think there is a, a big context for a conversation right now. So thank Absolutely. you so much for spending your time with us. Um, to learn more about Arabella Advisors, visit www.arabellaadvisors.com. Be sure also to subscribe to Forefront Radio on iTunes so you don't miss an episode or find us via SoundCloud. If you like what you heard, send us a tweet at MyForefront. Thanks so much to both of you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you.